the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We've all defeated a sore loser at some point in our lives, I think. Some of you are like, I never win, so I don't know. Um, Maybe you've been a sore loser at some point in your life. You know how sore losers are. They get crabby and really mean when they lose. And this is especially true when the person who loses was fully expecting to beat you. That's when sore losers at their worst is when they're humiliated. And then they get really nasty. Well, what what I realized this week is in contemplating this other part of of Christmas uh, with Herod, I've realized that evil is a sore loser. Christ has come, and those who are losing because he is coming are reacting like sore losers. So that's Herod. Um, But when we do lose... We, we have two responses, and there's perhaps others, but two primary ways we can handle losing. First, you could just be, get angry and upset like Herod. I'm losing. I'm making sure people come down with me, right? If I'm going down, you're going down with me. It's kind of like the devil's attitude. Sore loser. Um, or we can reflect on what went wrong. We can examine ourselves and come out of losing stronger. All champions will talk about the fact that their coaches or managers have taught them to use losing as learning experiences. It's going to happen. But how do we grow out of that? How do we examine ourselves out of that? We don't want to be sore losers. We want to be losers who learn and move on into better things. Um, But Herod, Herod's a sore loser. Herod takes anger. Herod is, (laughs) I I, I think about the fact that we talk about a Grinch when it comes to people who like are not very Christmassy. They kind of destroy the spirit. They're a Grinch or they're a bah humbug. Ebenezer Scrooge. All right. These are like the two like biggest villains of Christmas. Why doesn't Herod get enough spotlight? Like he's the worst when it comes to Christmas. He is the Grinch meets Ebenezer Scrooge, like, without his redemption story at the end. Um, he's like, both of those put together, and that still doesn't compare to who Herod is. Sometimes the story is so familiar, we don't stop and pause to think about who Herod was as a person. So, Herod was someone who came to Caesar. Uh, he, was, he was a powerful person in the region of Palestine, um, and Rome wanted to take over this region because Rome, as their empire was growing, this is before Christ was born, uh, Rome wanted to use this whole land bridge we call Israel, we also call Palestine, um, this land bridge, he wanted to use that to get wheat from Egypt, wheat from Egypt up on into the capital of Rome. Because the alternative is to ship on the high seas the grain from Egypt to Rome. And, well, from shipwrecks, uh, to storms, you can lose a lot of cargo and also pirates. Pirates would just take the cargo. So Rome discovered they were losing a lot of the grain on the way and only some of it was getting to Rome. So they preferred to have a road system which soldiers could patrol and they would get the majority of the wheat to Rome. And so that way to get to Rome was through Israel. 
And it was vital to Rome to have this area under control and at peace. So um, what Rome often liked to do, if they could, was to use local rulers. They didn't throw local rulers out. They used local rulers to help them govern. It helped Rome not stretch their empire and their rulership too thin. So the more they can gain leaders that would be loyal, the better it was for them. So Herod presents himself to Caesar as someone that Caesar could use. And Herod asks for an army, and he will then lead them into victory over Jerusalem, and Herod will establish peace for Caesar over Jerusalem. Herod's like, that sounds good to me. So Herod receives the army. Herod uh, defeats Jerusalem, and Herod then establishes um, his reign over the area. Uh, And what we see about Herod right there is the way he... Oh, when he did that, by the way, um, Caesar gave him the title king of the Jews. You're going to rule over them on my behalf. So Herod establishes his rule over Jerusalem, and we see how. Like, he had to go get it. He had to go fight for it. And then he's given this title, King of the Jews. Well, then the Magi come, and they're like, where is he who's born King of the Jews? And Herod's like, come again? That's me. Who is trying to take my title? Now, there's a principle generally in life that when we have to strive to gain something, we then have to strive to maintain that which we gain. Uh, Since Herod had to go full extreme to gain Jerusalem and this title king of the Jews, he's willing to do the same to keep his title king of the Jews. So it's not going to surprise us that he's going to resort to violence to keep this title. But even before the Magi, Herod was known for resorting to violence to keep his title king of the Jews. Um, there are multiple reports of him who killing his own family members because they were charged with conspiracy for dethroning him. So he kills his own wife, he kills his brother, he kills some of his children. And that prompted Caesar to say, it is safer to be Herod's pig than his son. And of course, you guys have probably heard this story because it's, it's such a memorable one. If you heard it, you remember it. That Herod recognized he wasn't going to be mourned when he died. So he ordered the death of all of his leadership upon his death so that people would mourn for him when he died. Of course, nobody carried it out because he was dead and nobody had to do what he said anymore. But that's the kind of guy we're dealing with when we talk about Herod the Great. Herod's a sore loser. He will do whatever it takes to make sure he looks like a winner, even kill children in Bethlehem. Okay, so Psalm 139 is going to give us some hope that God cares about those who suffer, that God cares about us. But you're also going to notice some tension in the psalm. As we prayed it, it might have felt so odd, like the, the psalm changed keys at the end. All of a sudden, like how beautiful God loves us and sees us and knows us and then kill the evil and I hate them. It's like, where did that come from? That feels like it belongs in another psalm. All right. Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you search me and you know me. You yourself know my resting and my rising. You discern my thoughts from afar. You mark when I lie down, when I walk or lie down. You know all my ways through and through. You notice the repetition, right? It's saying the same thing, but giving us different scenarios. 
What the psalmist is saying is, God, you're amazing and wonderful in that there's not an aspect of my life that goes unnoticed to you. Before ever a word is on my tongue, you know it, O Lord, through and through. Behind and before you besiege me. That's like setting up a wall of protection or surrounding is what besiege literally means. Um, You besiege me. Your hand ever laid upon me. Too wonderful for me, this knowledge. Too high. Beyond my reach. So he's even going a step further and saying, not only do you observe all that I do, but you know my intentions. You know words before I speak them because you are so intimately connected to your creatures that you know you can see what they're about to do because you know their loves. And that's also scary, isn't it? To know that he sees so much and knows so much. We must wonder how much he yearns to see us yearn for him but he sees all the other words and thoughts that we're going to have as well. Oh, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your face? That, by the way, bless you, is exactly what Jonah tried to do. When God sent him to the Ninevites, he sought to flee from the face of the Lord, is literally how the Hebrew reads it. Well, Jonah should have known Psalm 139. He probably did. But Jonah was, you know, doing his best. And we do this too sometimes. We we think that we can do something that will somehow not be in the face of the Lord. But this is where we remember. Like, there's nowhere we can go from his spirit. And I love the prayer. Um, oh, heavenly king, the comforter, the spirit of truth, who are in all places and fill all things. It's that reminder that God permeates and saturates every inch of his creation. So the examples are piled on at this point. If I climb to the heavens, you are there. If I lie in shoal, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn or dwell at the sea's furthest end, the wings of the dawn, like where the sun rises, right? Like that's, that's the psalmist just trying to say like somewhere where we can't reach. Even if I got there, you would be there. Even there, your hand would lead me. Your right hand would hold me fast. Not only led by God's hand, but the right hand. The right hand was always the hand of authority and power. God does not just reserve his right hand for important things and then gives us his left hand. He gives us his best hand. Verse 11 If I say, let the darkness hide me and let the night around me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night shall be as bright as day and darkness the same as the light. Comforting to know that even when we are in darkness, because we can't see the same way, we have periods of deep darkness and we can't see a foot in front of us. But how comforting to know that that's not how God sees that moment. He sees the full thing as if there is no darkness. 4, verse 13, It was you who formed my inmost being. Knit me together in my mother's womb. So that seems to be a parallel that um, doesn't just say the same thing, but increases what it says. You knit my 
it's talking about two parts. My innermost being, uh, being generally is going to be the Hebrew word nefesh for soul. It's your being is literally how it's translated. And then knit me together may refer to his flesh, his skin, the, t- the tissues and sinews. So like all parts of me you put together. I thank you who wonderfully made me. How wonderful are your works, which my soul knows well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being fashioned in secret and molded in the depths of the earth. Now you have to remember, we're dealing with poetry and these are prayers. This is not, this is not, these are not texts we take as straightforward systematic theology. Like this would not be a great verse, for example, to make a theology out of. God forms us in the earth and then inserts us into a stomach somewhere. <laughs> That's obviously he knows that babies come from the womb, right? Like this is not what the psalmist is saying. Um, he may be alluding to the idea that humanity was formed from the earth. Like Adam and Eve were formed from the dust and breathed into. So he's not trying, we shouldn't take a theology here about how individual people come into being. Um, rather, we're seeing um, just that general statement where humanity was originally created. Um, where am I? Molded in the depths of the earth. Verse 16. Your eyes saw me yet unformed. And all days are recorded in your book, formed before one of them came into being. I love this. They saw me yet unformed. So God God has a vision, an idea of who we're to be, like creation. Uh, he, he knew what he wanted to make. It was a matter of speaking it into being, right? He's not just surprised by... Uh, let's throw this word out, Michael. It's like a lottery. Like, Michael, give me the bowl of words. Light. Okay, let's see what happens. Light. Whoa, look, I didn't know that would happen. Like, right, God had a vision. He had a plan to make a place for humans to dwell with him and share the world with him and worship him in it. See, he had a vision even before it's formed. Then he forms it. The first three days of creation are about him forming spaces. And then the, sec- the second set of three days are about him filling those spaces he formed. And here we have a similar concept that the psalmist is praying about himself. You, um, the last line of 16, formed. The days were formed before one of them came into being. Um, God formed his days before these days came into being, before he was put in the days. So consider this. Like the way that God knows the end of creation is to make humans share communion with him in an eternal Sabbath. That's the goal of creation. Uh, so what God has in mind as he does day one and day two and day three, these days, he's forming them. He, he knows that humans are coming. And so he's forming space. He's, he's forming these days so that the humans can be placed in something that was made for them. God makes room for the humans. It's not, okay, day six. Now what? Oh, humans. Ooh, we got to find room for them. God was making space for the humans. That's why we were made last. And it's the same with the psalmist. God is forming his days before one of them come into being. What this tells me is that God has made room for you before you came to being, before you were born. He made room for you. There was a space 
made for you to fill in his creation. So that there is no person that's a waste, no person that's a mistake. Despite some people saying, yeah, that child was an accident. Like, God didn't, God, he formed their days before they came into being. So if they don't come into being, there's an emptiness in his purpose. Um, this means that every person has a place. Every person has a place. Sometimes we struggle with trying to find out what that place is for someone. But we must realize when we look at every single human that God made them for a place. He had a place for them and he needs them to fill that place. That might change the way I see people. Sometimes I see people think, what place do they fill in this world? (laughs) What place do they fill in my life? There's no room in my life for that person. But that's not the biblical way to look at it. We thus also have to say then that even Herod had a place in God's world. That does not mean that every person fills that place the way that God would want them to. Herod fills the place doing what Herod wants to do. But God has a place for every person. And it's our role to fill that with his beauty and his goodness. Um, rivals, see, like rivals like Herod refuse to see that people have a place. If we don't see that God has a place for everyone, then we see them as rivals. Your, this creation ain't big enough for the two egos that we possess. And that's, that's what happens. Herod has a big old proud ego and Herod does not see that Jerusalem is big enough for two king of the Jews. So one of us has to give and it's not me. I'm going to act first to make sure this king of the Jews is annihilated. That's the outlook of someone who does not see that God makes room for every single person, that God prepares the days before they even enter to the days. Herod has not prayed Psalm 139 in his life or he would have perhaps been changed a little bit. Um, Okay. Then we go to verse 17. To me, how precious your thoughts, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I count them, they are more than the sand. And at the end, I am still at your side. Now, translations might hint this one way or another, but my translation makes it a little vague, like at the end of what? At the end of my days, I'm still at your side? Or at the end of counting your thoughts, I am still at your side? Um, I, I, at least the way this one reads, it, it helps, it makes me think it's when I count them, your thoughts, at the end of counting your thoughts. Even though they are, there's a great sum, they're more than the sand. The whole point is poetry. You say, even if I get to the end of these thoughts, you're not tired of me. You're still by my side. Wow. We get tired of things like what, Daniel, by like week eight in a semester, you can feel the students are tired of the semester, you know, out of 14. (laughs) That's uh, you can feel it. We just want change or we want to think about something different. Our brains are exhausted on this, but not God. He thinks upon his creatures we have to remember that God wanted to create man to be in fellowship and communion with him forever. 
And the fact that we're not and that we had fallen, this makes God think about us because he he yearns for that communion and fellowship and he can't stop yearning for that. This is where the incarnation, the coming of Christ in flesh makes complete sense if we take this thinking to its furthest end. He couldn't stop thinking about us. So it came to a point when he just had to become us so that we could actually notice him. So he can be one with us and side by side with us. Uh, you become what you love is a saying we have. And I think the Bible makes that pretty evident too. Like Psalm 115 says, if you worship idols, you become like idols, deaf, dumb, mute, stupid, and blind. Um, because they are too. But if we come like God, if we worship God, we become like God. And here God loves us to the point that he becomes us. He becomes like that which he keeps thinking about and loving. The incarnation seemed like a logical thing if you take that to its furthest thought. At the end of your thoughts, I'm still at your side. Oh God, now here, it's like we could just end this here and say happily ever after. But the psalm continues, and this is what angers a lot of people about psalms. They just never quite fit with the way we want them to go. So verse 19. (sighs) Oh God, that you would slay the wicked. (laughs) Thinking about people we think about. Maybe the wicked are eating at the psalmist's mind. That men of blood would depart from me. With deceit they speak against you. And against you they exalt themselves in vain. That's pride. And that's Herod's position right here. Herod is this wicked man that needs to be slain. He is the, 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 the man of blood that we want to depart. He, he with deceit speaks against God. He deceived the wise men. Oh, go tell me where he is that I may worship him. So he deceives them, but when the, when the wise men trick him back and leave without coming back to him, he can't play nice, can he? He gets all mad. Like, that's someone that dishes out but can't receive it. That's a sore loser. Uh, he's deceitful. He speaks against God. He speaks against others and against you. They exalt themselves in vain. He exalts himself against God. Do I not hate those who hate you? Abhor those who rise against you. I hate them with a perfect hate and they are foes to me. Okay. Here's one of those moments when we have to talk about anger Anger is not actually a sin in and of itself. Anger is an emotion. How we allow the emotion to be used determines whether it's sin or virtue, vice or virtue. So you may remember, if you jog your minds back, a passion is a sin which controls us. Because passion, its root means to be passive. It has me. When I get angry, it becomes a passion when the anger controls me. Herod, tricked, angry. What happens? Anger controls Herod and it slaughters children. On the reverse side, anger is felt and I can control the anger. And this is how you control anger. The psalm is showing us what anger is for. Anger is to be directed at evil. Not, we learn from Paul in Ephesians 6, flesh and blood. Paul says, don't direct the warfare against flesh and blood. Direct it against the powers behind the flesh and blood that make you angry. So he goes on to list all the spiritual authorities and says, that's the warfare. 
And we, because of that revelation, can read the Psalms and understand when we read enemies and foes in the Psalms, we are to be angry at that enemy and foe. So the, um, that, oh God, that you'd slay the wicked. I don't literally pray or hope that people who sin and hate God would die right now. I don't want that. No one who has God's love in them wants to slay people. That's what Herod does. No, we want the devil and his foes to be trodden and to finally be judged, which will happen when Christ comes. That men of blood would depart from me. Uh, same idea. Say they speak against you, blah, blah. Um, but the verse 21 and 22, do I not hate those who hate you? It's okay to hate demons. That's an appropriate use of anger. Like the fathers write all the time that God gave us anger to be directed at the demons. That's why anger exists. When we misplace it anywhere else, we are sinning. Anger is given to the human to be directed at the devil and his demons. So our psalmist claims that he hates them with a perfect hate and they are foes to me. A perfect hate is what we're talking about. A pure hate, a hate that is not sinful. But how do you know that you have that hate? That's where verse 23 and 24 rounds out the psalm. We already know that God sees everything. So now he's going to give permission for God to search all things, even the possibility that his hatred is not right in his eyes. So he prays, Oh, search me, God, and know my heart. Oh, test me and know my thoughts. See that my path is not wicked and lead me in the way everlasting. So when we see evil in the world, how do we feel? How do we respond? How do we pray? We must make sure that we allow God to search us and know us. This is an examination. Sore losers get angry when they lose. But we, when we feel the pain of evil, when we see children that are killed with in the womb, when we see uh, what's happening to Christians in Nigeria, when we see these things, we f- should feel anger. But we also must pray that God searches us so that this anger is used rightly in his eyes. Uh, that's his examination. So we feel that anger. We feel like we're losing. We need an examination. Um, that's where Psalm 139 plays in really nicely with this concept of um, Herod and circumcision. Because when the psalmist prays, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see that my path is not wicked and lead me in the way everlasting, this is a circumcision of the heart. It's, O Lord, cut off the things that are wrong, the things that are evil. May these be cut off. May these be removed from me. Because the Christian who seeks a circumcision of the heart is a, is a person who kills the flesh, the Bible says. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Whereas Herod morti- mortifies, yeah, kills, slaughters humans, the Bible tells the Christian to kill the things within themselves that's not right. That's where the anger is directed. Not out here, but within. 
Let the things and the works of the devil and the darkness and the sin, let this be eliminated. Let this be killed. This is how we circumcise our hearts. And this is the proper response when we see evil is self-reflection. How am I handling this? And is there any of this evil out here within me? Because it's so easy for the church, isn't it? To point out what everyone's doing wrong and pick sides and never pause to kill the evil within ourselves. We need to be a people who are circumcised in Christ, that the wickedness and darkness within us, that Herod within us is cut off and has no place to grow within us. So um, we'll close by turning our attention to Romans chapter 2. This is where Paul, uh, we already read in Colossians 2 how um, we are circumcised in Christ with the circumcision made without hands. That's another way of saying uh, the Jews are circumcised with the hands, right? Like someone used their hands to do that process to that person. Circumcision made with hands. Um, but in Christ, we are circumcised without hands. It's something that's of the heart. And Paul says this much more directly in Romans chapter 2, um, verse 29. It starts in verse 25, but for the sake of time and to get to the direct point, I'll go to verse 29. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So a Jew, he was here talking about how there's fake Jews and real Jews. And the fake Jew is someone who's circumcised with in the flesh, but they're not obeying God's will at all. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. Just because you're obeying God's commands one way in your body, like by something you did to your body, but you're not obeying the rest of the commands, you're not a real Jew at all. You're a fake. You're a phony. Since it's Christmas and this movie has been watched recently, it's like Elf telling Santa, you sit on a throne of lies and you smell like beef and cheese. That's what Paul's saying to the Jews there. Like you are not authentic because you aren't actually obeying all God's law. So rather he's saying a Jew is not someone who's ethnically Jewish. A Jew is someone who is circumcised in the heart. That's what he's saying. And a circumcised heart is one who does all of God's will. This is what Christ is after. When he is circumcised, sin is cut off from his human nature. Like there is an ability for us to cut off the evil and the wrong. And this is what we have in him. And we seek this and we pray this. So Psalm 139, wonderful psalm with some ugliness. But there's this tension of this nearness, this imminence of God. And this imminence makes some people go mad. Some people say, how dare Christ come on earth? And they, we see evil escalate. But on the other hand, others say he's come to earth and we want this intimacy. We want this nearness with him. There's two ways to respond And some are going to say, come near, circumcise my heart so that you may be nearer. There may be more room for you. And others are going to say, nope, I'm going to cut you out of my life. We have two choices, brothers and sisters. And since I, knowing you guys, I reckon I'm speaking to Christians, um, we must then be careful that we don't try to cut off the evil around us without making sure we cut off the evil within us. Most important part, so that then we can righteously go forth and not imitate the deeds of Herod.
Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. For you are good and you love mankind. Amen.